It was a combination of faith and irony that a young man born in Kansas would eventually play in a band called Kansas. It happened to Phil Ehart, founding member and drummer of a band that would leave a lasting impression in the world of classic rock. Legendary rock promoter Don Kirshner clearly made the right decision when he signed Kansas to their first deal, placing the band on a road to rock success. For decades, Ehart's steady backing rhythms have been the foundation of the band's hits, such as Carry On Wayward Son and Dust in the Wind. These classic hits have become timeless gifts to the world that will carry on forever. Follow the evolution of Kansas as Inside Music Cast welcomes the timeless Phil Ehart. Hey, Phil, thanks for hanging out with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thank Welcome. you for having me. You know, I was thinking about your career, and you know, you're pretty much Kansas full circle. I mean, you were born in Kansas. <laughs> your father was in the Air Force, and you ended up living in, you know, various places around the world. You know, while he was in the Air Force, but you know, you ultimately ended up back in Topeka at some point, and and that's where you founded a band with the same name. So, and I, I'm just curious to know: is Kansas still your home today? Uh, no. No, actually, uh, it was one of those things, uh, as soon as we could afford to get out of Kansas, uh, <laughs> we did. And it was uh, around our second album, uh-huh. and we were playing down in um, in Atlanta, Georgia, at a place called uh, Alex Cooley's Electric Ballroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd, we'd go down there and, and play for like five and six nights in a row. And this was, uh, you know, first and second album. People always ask, you know, how did you guys end up in Atlanta, being mm-hmm. named Kansas and being from Kansas? And we've actually been there over 30 years now. And, uh-huh. and um, the simple answer is women. <laughs> it was it was uh, seven women uh, to every guy. Wow. And, okay. And of course, we didn't know that at the time, but coming from a town of 40,000, yeah. uh, we noticed that, my goodness, there's an awful lot of good-looking women here, and, and why are we going back to Kansas? <laughs> it's warm down here. The people are friendly. The women are gorgeous. Why Why are we going back there? And uh, <laughs> So we eventually came to our senses and uh, moved down there, and we've been there ever since. Interesting. Well, you know, actually, to make a – I was kind of rude to start the interview off. I, speaking And speaking of women, we have uh, Kim Riley, who's one of our correspondents, joining <laughs> us. She's on the line with us right now. <laughs> Kim, Hello. Hello. <laughs> Ken's going to jump in with some questions uh, here a little later on as well. So I just forgot to forgot to set that up when we started. But so I, you know, I want to dig a little deeper. You know, going back to your childhood. You know, living in places like I mentioned, your dad was in the Air Force, and you've lived in yeah. places like the Philippines and Japan. And and because you're, you know, uh, I mean, through the experience you had traveling, were there were any part of these experiences influential to you from a musical perspective? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I think it would be uh, uh, because I lived in such remote parts of the world, um, and also including Montana. Uh, my dad was up there at a time putting uh, uh, missiles in the ground, uh, wow. as well as Japan and the Philippines. And uh-huh. it, uh, my brother was quite a bit older than I, and he went on to college. So I spent a, you know, it was kind of like being an only child, but it it forced me 
into playing drums. I basically taught myself how to play, mm-hmm. and uh, there was an awful lot of uh, downtime, you might say, because there just wasn't a lot to do, uh, you know, in, in uh, Montana or in the Philippines or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just, uh, I, I think those places probably forced me more into, you know, uh, woodshedding and just sitting on my drum set and practicing and practicing and practicing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say those places probably had a an indirect impact on my on my uh, musical upbringing. Right. So as you were watching or as you were practicing and you were drumming on your spare time and and uh, enjoying that time, um, who who were you listening to from a drumming perspective that uh, that uh, that you were trying to mimic? Who was uh who were the drummers out there that you were trying to <laughs> you know? I mean that's a, I mean that's a well, big wide um, question, but. You know, uh, it, w- it wasn't like I was in the cultural hotbeds of the United <laughs> States. You know, it was yeah. uh, I was so so far away and so cut off from everything. Um, nobody. I mean, really. I mean, wow. my my parents listened. You know, there would be records playing, and it'd be big band stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Frank Sinatra or or Johnny Mathis or stuff like that. There wasn't. Uh, uh, over there, there just wasn't a, a lot of rock and roll, so really my early upbringing was just myself. I mean, I would just mm-hmm. sit there and and just try to figure out how this would work, and that's probably... And, of course, there was nobody I could take lessons from, so mm-hmm. it wasn't mm-hmm. like I could go to somebody and learn anything. <laughs> so, I mean, my parents <laughs> would watch, you know, Lawrence Welk or something right. like that. It was anything but, uh, you know, rock influences early on. Mm-hmm. So it was really pretty much uh, probably just, uh, and of course when the Beatles came on and, you know, in, in the uh, mid-60s and stuff, then I would start, you know, obviously you heard that yeah. anywhere around the world. But, right, uh, radio. But it really pretty much was just myself, mm-hmm. just sitting there trying to figure out uh, different different things based on what my parents might be playing next door, you know. Uh, on the stereo. Mm-hmm. So you were you were completely self-taught, or did you have any sort of educational, uh, you know? No, uh, no, completely, completely self-taught. No kidding. You know, I was kind of curious. You know, you've talked about your rock influence, and and really, Kansas's music was a, a real fusion of of rock and you know, really some classical elements in there as well. And did tell me about that. I mean, did did you grow up listening to any classical music? Um, and and did you have influences from a classical perspective? Uh, none at all. You know, I, I wish I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I wish I, I could read music. I wish I'd had a uh, an education in drumming. Um, mm-hmm. I guess uh, <laughs> I don't know how much further along I'd be now if I had. But it's it's something that uh, uh, you know. I, I think you you always kind of wish you had what you don't have, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's one of those things. As I see other drummers play, I can see. Uh, the the depth of their playing the uh, the lessons the education that they have because it shows up in their playing um, it, you know I, I'm just I've always told people I, I I'm just really good at faking it you know it, it's, uh, <laughs> you know people are always usually surprised that uh, that I that I've had no education uh, and it's I go I just go well I, uh, I'm just a good faker you know I can get up there and kind of pretend but uh, I've never you know had any pretense uh, or or said that I have been educated is just something that, uh, um, you know, just just happy that I was able to, to play in Kansas and, and have such great music to to play in that I think the music also had a lot to do with helping my, my ability to play and coming up with ideas. But uh, one thing, I mean, I've had a number of drummers who, uh, 
who are very good drummers, tell me that in a lot of ways it was probably good that I didn't have the education because mm-hmm. I was just a blank palette. Okay. I mean, there, I just, there was no input from anybody. So when Kansas came along and the guys would go, well, Phil, this is, in, this is a 9-8 time signature. Well, I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. It sure. would just be, okay, well, I guess I'll play this. You know, but it would just come from nowhere. It wasn't like I spent a lot of time with jazz playing, you know, odd time signatures. It was just, okay, I'll try this beat or I'll try that beat. And uh, so and I guess in some ways it was probably probably a, a good thing. Yeah, cool. Um, Phil, how would you describe your drumming style? Because it's heavy and it's cl- yet it's real clean and not overplayed, which isn't really normal rock drumming. How would you describe it? I have no idea. You know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I I I don't know. Um, I, I I consider myself a rock drummer. I mean, that's that's my uh, that's what I like. That's mm-hmm. the music I like the most. Mm-hmm. I like music that rocks. If mm-hmm. it doesn't rock, uh, I'll move on. And it's something that uh, so I think that's where my heart lies is in rock music. So I would consider myself a a rock drummer. Cool. You know, I'm curious about the the local scene in, in Topeka. You kind of mentioned, you know, Kansas a moment ago, and, and you know, when you guys made enough money, you were going to just skate out of there. But you know, around that time when you, when you were younger and you were honing in your skills, uh, were you in? I, I'm assuming you're probably in some local bands there during that time. And if so, what kinds of music were you playing? And I guess I'm assuming rock, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a good question. You know, Topeka uh, again was pretty much cut off from everything. Anything that we heard uh, was through big FM radio stations like, uh, you know, WLS in Chicago. And, right, oh, yeah. And the uh, big one in uh, Little Rock. and and uh, You picked up WLS from Topeka? Uh-huh. Wow, Larry Lujak. Yeah. Remember Larry Lujak and all those guys? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness, you pushed the button. Keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we, you know, we would listen to stuff like that, and, and, uh, and of course, there was a couple of music stores that would get imports, mm-hmm. rec- you know, records that would come in from other parts of the world, and... And, you know, we all lived in a band house, so there was, you know, somebody buy a, a new record by this really cool band called King Crimson or ELP or whatever. And But we, you know, we were big fans of the Allman Brothers, too, in Chicago and Santana. And so, you know, it was just, uh, we would just listen to lots of stuff, but, you know, we were a terrible, terrible copy band. We we could not play other people's material to <laughs> you know, save our lives. We tried, and it just sucked, you know, and it was, and I'm not sure why, but we just, but as soon as we, as soon as we try to do something of our own, it was like, now that sounds good, you know, that's working, but man, we cannot play this. So what we would do is we would, you know, so we could survive as full-time musicians, we would play clubs and, you know, fraternities, rodeos, any place we could play in the middle of Kansas. And, um, We'd play there, and we would announce our songs, like, well, we're going to do a new song by Deep Purple, and then we'd play one of our songs. Uh, we've got a new song by Led Zeppelin. Everybody going, Led Zeppelin's got a new song? No kidding. And then we'd, you know, we'd play one of our songs, and they'd kind of go, that's a Led Zeppelin song? <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was the, but it was the only way we could survive, because nobody would hire us to play original material. Yeah. You know, clubs and fraternities and stuff. They, one thing that we were pretty good at was uh, soul music. Okay. We, we could play the heck out of Wilson Pickett or uh-huh. Sam and Dave or, you know, the Young Rascals. I mean, right. we could just smoke on that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, if it just came to anything that was popular, that was uh, 
um, you know, more, you know, blue-eyed soul kind of stuff, we, we, we couldn't do very well. And so we, uh, we, we didn't play quite as much as the other bands in town. Well, you were, Especially you were... when we started breaking out those odd time signatures at, at high school proms, <laughs> you know, that, that was really popular. Here, dance to this, you guys. You guys do like a slow song so we could dance? We don't do slow songs, you know. Like, what? <laughs> slow so, slow yeah, song. Was, and... uh, we, we were very... Uh, uh, we, we just weren't real popular. There's a little romantic piece in 13.8. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to stop for just a second and, and mention that last year, Kansas released a live CD and a DVD project called There's No Place Like Home that was recorded in uh, Topeka, Kansas, and that was also with the Washburn Symphony Orchestra. And I wanted to take a quick break and play one of the instrumental tracks off of the CD. This is a track called Musicato.
And that was the track called Musicato from Kansas's live DVD and CD uh, that was released last year in 2009. That's great. Well, you eventually uh, found your way down to New Orleans. I think that was like in 1969. And, and you know, were you in one of the bands that you're in, you, you played down there. And I guess uh, you played with some very well-known artists such as mm-hmm. Joe Cocker and Iron Butterfly and even Jim Morrison from The Doors. And I just can't imagine what kind of experience that had to be. Really? How did you get involved with with uh, with these artists? Well, um, <laughs> we had a, a manager, you know, I would put in uh, in quotation marks, uh, <laughs> there in, in Topeka. And uh, he was up there going to uh, Menninger's uh, mental institution at the time, so he fit in very well with us. And uh, he was originally from um, New Orleans. And uh, he said, guys, I have a guy that owns a club in the French Quarter down there in in uh, in New Orleans, and uh, would you guys like to go down there and play for a summer? Well, we were, I guess, 18 and 19 at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, we said, okay, well, you know what? He said, well, uh, you, you'll play uh, 90, 90 nights out of 90. Wow. Well, wow, that's a load. He said, yeah, it'll be, you know, four hours a night, right in the middle of the French Quarter. It was a place called the Roach. <laughs> We're going, oh, boy, this is going to be great. So we went down there, and we got us a uh, kind of a band apartment where six of us were in one room. And every night from 10 to 2, we played in this, this place called the Roach. And that's where we'd go down in the afternoons and, you know, grab a candy bar for lunch along with a Coke there from the, behind the bar. And that's, we would spend our time working on on playing, writing songs, playing, writing songs, rearranging. And that's where we really kind of started to develop our, our craft there. was doing, And then we'd play at night. And uh, we did, we played 89 nights out of 90. Um, one of the nights the toilet overflowed in the club. And we didn't get to play, so we were pretty <laughs> <laughs> but we, yeah, we what would happen <laughs> is that these, the musicians good. that were in town, the bands that would come to town to play, you know, the big bands, they would come to the Roach. I guess that was the place uh-huh. where people would come, you know. So we came, uh, you know, Joe Cocker came by, and, and one night we were we were playing, and uh, the club club owner came up during one of our breaks, and he said, "You see that guy over at the bar?" I'm going, "Yeah, yeah, that's uh, Jim Morrison." No way. We said, yeah, that's, that's Jim Morrison. <laughs> this was at the time of his Miami bust and everything, and, and his hair was all grown out and had, you know, a big beard and everything. And, and the club owner said, he wants to come over and say hi to you guys. And we go, okay. why? And he goes, well, I think he wants to sit in with you guys. Because we, we did some door songs and stuff. Cool. Not very well. <laughs> and and so he comes over, and he sits down at the table, and we're just, I mean, we're like 18, 19 years old. We're just going... Oh my gosh! You know, it's Jim Morrison. He's sitting here at the table with us. And he was going, you know, how you guys doing? And you know, I've got some new poetry that I've written, and I was wondering if you guys would let me come up there during light my fire, and in the middle, just kind of rock back and forth on the chords, and let me try out some of my new poetry. Oh my gosh! We're going, nah. I'm sorry, Jim. We're going, guy. Are you kidding? Yeah, that that would be great. You know, so so we go up there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, it's a very small stage. I'm like you know, three feet from this guy, and he's singing Light My Fire. <laughs> We're just going, this is unbelievable. And in the middle, and in the middle of, of the song, he pulls out these this notebook, and he starts reading this, I was an Indian boy, you know, and, all this kind of, and he starts doing all this poetry, and we're going, oh, my God. And he closes the notebook after a number of verses, 
turns around, gives us a nod, walks off the front of the stage, and walks out the door. Holy cow. And we're just going, oh, man. I mean, you know, it was just, you know, no one at home is even going to believe us, you know. It wasn't <laughs> like there was iPhones back there or anything where you could get a picture. I mean, he was gone. And so a number of months later, uh, we got a call um, uh, at, at, at the Roach uh, from uh, Bill Siddons, who was, uh, uh, you know, the Doors manager. And he said, uh, uh, the Doors are coming to town. They're going to be playing the warehouse. And Jim wants to know if you guys would like to open wow. for the Doors. Wow. And we're going, oh, man, great. So we went down there and, and we, you know, we met all the guys. And we're like hanging backstage. And, you know, we're just kids. I mean, we still got zits, you know. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it, it was just, uh, you know, it was just, this is just incredible. And, and so we, we, we played. And then we came off, and the doors played, and they got to the end of their set, and they come back, and, and Morrison comes running up to the dress and goes, you guys, you've got to come out and jam with us. Grab your stuff and come out and do the last song with us. Holy and we're God. looking at each other going, really? Okay, so we run out there. I grab a tambourine. The guys had their you know bass. One of the guys, you know, we just kind of plugged in where we could plug in. And we did this last song with them. It was kind of a blues jam thing, and that was the end of the set, and... And God, we just kind of walked off and went, man, it was... And you know, two, I think it was about two to three weeks later, Jim Morrison died. I was wondering we about were that. we were sitting sitting there going, man, and all of a sudden it struck us. Jeez. That was the last gig they ever played, and we played on the last <sighs> song wow. that wow. the Doors ever played on. Holy cow. What a story. That's great. And we were just going, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was their last gig. Well, wait a minute. We played on the last song that the Doors ever played. And wow. and it was That's just... Amazing. Uh, there, there was definitely goosebump time. You know, we were just kind of going, man, what a what an honor that was. So, uh, okay. so yeah, I mean, living down in New Orleans was uh, definitely beat the hell out of Topeka, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt if Jim Morrison was coming through Topeka for any, any big concert. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we had some great experiences down there playing with all the, you know, Joe Cocker, that was his first tour, and we opened for him down there. And, really? And we were standing there, and this guy was standing, we looked over, and we said, uh, you in the band? And he goes, uh, yeah, I'm Joe Cocker. <laughs> we go, okay, great. <laughs> we thought, oh, man. But, you know, that's when he was really flipping out and had the, you know, that was the first time anybody had seen, uh, you know, any of his uh, movements, you might say. Yeah. This was uh, pre-Woodstock, you know. So right. it was, uh, <laughs> He was a great guy and great band, and uh, just saw a lot of, lot of cool stuff. We were down there the night we had our, at our band house. Um, uh, we were we were had a night off, and uh, we had a housekeeper there that had gone to see the Grateful Dead, and mm -hmm. uh, she, she brought home, she brought home Jerry Garcia, <laughs> you know, and, and the guys come in go, uh, guess who's in our in our kitchen? I go, I don't know, and they go. Jerry Garcia. I'm going, Jerry Garcia. So we go in there and there he is. He's sitting he's sitting there at our at our kitchen table and I'm going, Okay. So we sit down and we talk to this guy, you know, for a number of hours and just picked his brain. Great guy. And so afterwards, uh, she took him back to Bourbon Street and that was the night they got busted. And that's where the song Truckin' came from. Oh my gosh. And the reason Amazing. you know, he wasn't there, he was with us. <laughs> <laughs> he was with us at the time, and again, 
you know, we didn't know this at the time, but when the song Truckin' came out, we're going, hey, wait a minute. He was with us that night. That's the <laughs> night they got busted down in New Orleans. Holy cow. And, uh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, I could go on for hours. And that's, uh, that's what happened to us down there with all these big bands. But, uh, yeah, very cool. Very, uh, it was an exciting time. A lot of music going on and, you know. Five punks from Topeka were down there in New Orleans, <laughs> lucky enough to be a part of it, you know, as well as the New Orleans Pop Pop Fest. You know, we were uh, that was this was the during the Woodstock time, and the club owner came in and he said, "You know, they're going to have a uh, New Orleans Pop Festival here," and we're going, "Really?" And they said, "He said, yeah, you know, we're going to have all kinds of bands out here. Would you guys like to to be a part of it? I need some local bands to kind of fill in." And we said, "Well, yeah, okay." And he was one of the promoters uh, of the New Orleans Papa. And this was going to be a week after Woodstock. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, at the time, we, you know, Woodstock hadn't happened yet. But as this was starting to build up, he came in and he said, uh, okay, we got you guys uh, on, the, on the bill here. I think I've got you in a good spot here. I've got you. It's this kind of bongo conga band. They're Santana. Have you guys heard of them? <laughs> <laughs> bongo conga band. Never, you know, never heard of Santana. <laughs> He goes, well, I think you'll blow them off the frickin' stage because they're just, you know, from my understanding, they're just some percussion stuff. And we're going, oh, yeah, we'll blow those guys in the next week, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we get to the festival. There's about 60,000 people, and they have a split stage. You know, all one band's playing, the other band's setting up, you know. And so, <laughs> well, here's, it's like, you know, midnight, and here's Santana playing, and they're just blowing the place apart, you know, Soul Sacrifice, you know, yeah. they're playing Soul Sacrifice, and there's like 60,000 people going, of course, we're off to the right of them setting up our little amps and our little drums, we're going, holy cow, how are we going to follow Soul Sacrifice? Yeah. You know, I mean, they were one of the most unbelievable bands ever, they were not a conga band by any uh, stretch of the imagination, well, luckily, uh, right after their set, the sheriff shut down the festival for the night. <laughs> and <laughs> we're going, there is a God. You know? And it's one of those things that, uh, ne- so we opened the festival the next day at noon, and uh, we definitely got a break there. But but as we were coming off stage that afternoon, I heard this, hey, you guys are pretty good. And I look over, and there's Janice Joplin sitting there. Wow. On a stool outside of her trailer. Wow. And uh, where are you guys from? We kind of walked over, and she said, man, you guys are good. She said, you guys are really good. And we're just standing there again with our mouths open going, Janis Joplin. You know, so it was just, uh, it was it was an incredible time. Yeah. It really was. It sounds like it. I guess after this experience, I guess, you know, when you returned back to Topeka, you, oh. you, you couldn't have been too oh. thrilled with the with what was happening. <laughs> Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I so, mean, geez, but, you but that's around the time you decided to hightail it to London, right? <laughs> you said, enough yeah. of this. Yeah, wow. it was about, about a year after that I went to London. Yeah. What was the what was the idea about going to London? What were you in search I of? I have no idea. Yeah. No. Um, actually, <laughs> you know, I, I had kind of run out of guys to play with. You know, I'd kind of played with everybody in town, and they were kind of doing other things, and I was just going, I don't, I don't want to stay in Topeka and work at Sears. You know, that that's right. just not sure. that's just not you know after what I've already accomplished already. Right. So I just packed up my drums. We had a band school bus that I ended up with, and I sold that, took the money from that, and bought a ticket on TWA, and went and got a flat in London with my drums. And, uh, I mean, my drums went right around the edge of my bed, so I had just enough room in this little flat mm-hmm. to actually, you know, sleep. And it was one of those flats that worked off uh, money for electricity. 
that had a meter, so you'd have to go out and put money in the meter, and you'd have electricity. <laughs> no kidding. I didn't have any money. When the sun went down, <laughs> I, would just, I would just sit in my apartment in the dark, you know, wow. and, and uh, of course, I never told my mom that because I knew she'd burst into tears, you know. But it was it was one of those things that, you know, I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, well, it's, you know, Phil, it's pitch black in here. Well, yeah, it's okay, though, but, you know. So I, I would answer ads for uh, guys, you know, bands looking for drummers. And as soon as they found out I was an American, they wanted me to either play blues or uh, country music or jazz, something that was American. Okay. They, they, you know, and I was going, well, I don't play any of that stuff, you know, and, well, we already have tons of rock drummers, you know. We want, we want, you know, if you're an American, we want you to, you know, play blues. And so I stayed there for four or five months till my visa ran out, and then I uh, <laughs> packed up my drums out of my pitiful little dark apartment and uh, flew back home and gave Steve Walsh a call and said, "Okay, enough. <laughs> let's uh, let's put something together here." And so uh, that's what I then called Rich and Dave and Robbie and. That was the the five original guys that uh, we eventually added. Carrie Lindgren and mm-hmm. came Kansas. Yeah, you know uh, I've got a question. When when you came back, I mean, there, there's sort of like a uh, an evolution of some bands that sort of developed, and uh, because Kansas wasn't really the the first um, development of, of the bands. G- give us when you came back. Give us a little sequence as to you know with uh, with the, the other bands and how a little bit of the evolution because there is a very much uh, an evolution of the bands that uh, when you came back you know yeah well yeah uh, there were two bands really uh, in Topeka one was called White Clover and that was the one that was pretty much my band right right and that those stories I just told you were all White Clover stories okay and then there was another band called Saratoga and that's the band Carrie Livgren uh, headed up right right. And um, it, it's it, it didn't take long actually. We we uh, the five of us, White Clover, went into a studio in Liberal, Kansas, and um, uh, made a reel-to-reel tape. And I knew an engineer in New York uh, who had told me that Don Kirshner was looking for um, was going to start his own label, and he was looking for you know bands. So we made the tape, three songs on one side, three songs on the other. And sent, and sent it up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, this engineer I know dropped off the tape, uh, he talked to the lady, and she said, "We've, we've got a, you know over a hundred tapes so far. It, it may be quite a while, or maybe never, that you never hear that you ever hear from us. So, you know, don't sit by the phone." And um, we were playing in Dodge City, mm-hmm. great place. To play. <laughs> anyway, we were playing in, Do- in Dodge City. And um, uh, we got, uh, the, bar, the bartender walked over and he said, uh, can one of you guys take a call from New York City? We said, New York City? And then Dave, our bass player, walked over and this voice goes, Hi, uh, this is Wally Gold. I'm a producer for Don Kirshner uh, Music. And um, we got your tape and really like your tape. And uh, we'd like, like to come out. I'd like to get on my private jet and come out and see you guys. Uh, can you guys get a concert together in the next next couple of weeks? Hello? Hello? <laughs> Dave, Dave was standing there going, you know, is this a prank? You know, is somebody doing this? Is off the scene, you know? No, this is really Wally Gold, and we really want to come out. And Dave goes, uh, yeah, we'll call you back. So Dave walks over real slow, and we, we thought there was a death in the family, you know? I mean, it was just like, what? And he goes... 
and it was Don Kirshner, a guy from Don Kirshner's office, and they're going to come out and hear us, and we're going, oh, wow. my gosh, you know. So I went over to the phone and called Wally back, and we talked and kind of got when he was going to come and everything. And, and uh, so we said, guys, this is it. This, this, this will be probably our only shot. Mm-hmm. You know, so what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to put this together? Right. So we came up with the idea of going to the Ellenwood uh, Opera House, and uh, um, you know, we we knew this was coming, and uh, to put this gig together. Before we did that, before we did that, I called Carrie, and I said, Carrie, um, we're going to have an opportunity here. We we've got interest from Don Kirshner, and why don't you join us? Mm-hmm. And my exact words, which he doesn't appreciate to this day, but my exact words were, why don't you leave those wimps and come play with us? And he, <laughs> he still doesn't like me to tell that story, but that's, what, that's how I said it to him. I said, you know, come with us. Come, you know, because I knew in my mind the one thing I always wanted to see is I wanted to see Steve Walsh sing Carrie Livgren's songs. Mm-hmm. because I was aware of the music that Kerry was writing, but his singer wasn't Steve Walsh. I mean, he had a good singer, but he wasn't Steve. We had Steve. We had the best singer probably in, in ten states, you know. Right. And and uh, our music was okay, but with Kerry, we'd hit a whole different level. Mm-hmm. So Kerry said, okay, I'm in. So for the record, you know, <laughs> Kerry joined us, and, and we played the Ellenwood Opera House, and we gave away free beer. We figured that was the only way yep. this guy was going to show up in this place. Because, you know, again, who's going to come see an all-original band? Nobody. But if we gave away free beer, it'd be packed. So his jet lands, we pick him up, we take him to the Ellen Wood Opera House, and the place is, you know, there's people wrapped around the building three or four times great. to get in. And now, of course, he doesn't know that it's free beer, he just thinks we're the frickin' Beatles, right, exactly. you know, in the yeah. West. He thinks we're selling tickets like crazy. And we go in, and we play, and the rest is history. Yeah. You know, it, was, uh, it truly was the only opportunity we ever got, and we just were not going to let it, you know, uh, slip away because nobody was there or we sucked or whatever. We were, you know, we got Kerry. We, got, we, we loaded for Bear. You know, we changed our name to Kansas. I mean, we were... We were we were you know ready for this guy when he came and it wow. uh, it worked out well so cool. that's really to answer your question that's how in the scene there that was about the only only guys that were left were the guys that wanted to be lifers everybody else was going to college or mm-hmm. you know graduating and going getting a job but the guys that were in the original Kansas we were about the only uh, I guarantee you Robbie was the only violinist. Around you know there wasn't a lot of those to choose from, so uh, it was an eclectic group uh, definitely. And uh, but we all we all wanted to go you know full time and knowing this was our opportunity, so Don Kirshner signed us up and off we went. Yeah. So um, Phil, were you aware of Carrie's writing talents? I mean, he became oh, known yeah. for his writing rather complex oh, compositions, yeah. and his oh, lyrics were time. very poetic. Yes, because we had actually myself and Dave Hope had actually played with Carrie earlier on in a, in and in, uh, in a the very first uh, incarnation of Kansas and uh but it uh so we you know we knew what Carrie could do we knew his prowess as a as a guitar player a keyboard player but 
Terry was kind of interested in working with these other guys. It was going a little bit more Frank Zappa, uh, more jazz influenced. And mm-hmm. like I said earlier, if it doesn't rock, I'm out of there. So, you know, I said, Dave, let's, you know, this is getting way, way too crazed. And uh, so uh, Dave and I went to uh, Brooklyn, New York, which is a whole other chapter. Mm-hmm. But um, we we then came back and started, um, and I went to England, blah, blah, blah. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it gets real confusing. But anyway, yes, to answer your question, we were very aware of uh, how Kerry wrote, and but but I wanted Steve to sing those songs. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, Steve really wasn't aware of Carrie's writing too much. And uh, But I just, you know, I'd lay, lay awake at night going, God, I could just get Steve to sing Carrie's songs. You know, we would really have something. We would have something that is very special, spe- you know, especially with that violin and sure. what we're doing. This could be really cool. So, it, you know, we just kind of had to wait for things to line up. And then it uh, it finally did. And, and so, yeah. yeah. Well, with Carrie, it was a little different because I think he came from a classically trained background, uh, a, a little different. So, I mean, I mean, it sort of makes sense of the of the nature of the complex compositions that, that he yeah. was throwing out at you. So, you know, let me ask you a question regarding his, the, let's call it the colliding of of Carrie coming in t- and, and really, you know, depositing his compositions. A lot of them, a lot of them that are very complex rhythmically. Tell me a little bit about the things that faced you as a drummer with his compositions. Well, it, uh, again, you know, uh, the person that really... <laughs> had an intense amount of classical background was mm-hmm. Steve. Really? Okay. Oh, I mean, Steve on a Hammond organ right. with the foot pedals and stuff mm-hmm. was something to behold. Wow. And when we first auditioned Steve, uh, he auditioned as a keyboard player. He did? Wow. We didn't even know he could sing. Wow. <laughs> so he sits down at this, you know, Hammond organ with the foot pedals and start, and we're just going, oh, my God. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. guy is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And uh, and he said, uh, and I said, well, we're we're, we're kind of looking for somebody that can sing. And he goes, well, I, I can sing a little bit. And we said, you can sing. And he goes, yeah, I can sing. So he pulls the <laughs> and he starts singing, and we're going, oh my gosh, what a freaking voice, you know? And it was like, oh man, what a package. So the 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 complexity of stuff was not just from Carrie, but was from equally from Steve. And uh, so the two of them together uh, created an incredible nightmare for me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But, you know, uh, there was was so much complexity there that uh, it it kind of uh, kept us all on our toes. But it wasn't that Dave or Rich, you know, Dave on bass and Rich on guitar were were any sort of uh, trained players either. We were pretty much, you know, just kind of blues guys. You know, we like the Almond Brothers and stuff like that. And and so when these guys started coming out with all this stuff, it was just like, great, you know, let's let's see what we can do. So mm-hmm. it was uh, it was really I, I can honestly say because of the lack of training from the majority of the guys in the band, uh, that music came from the heart. Yeah, Th- those parts came from the heart because we we had nothing mentally mentally to draw from. It wasn't like you know none of us were college educated. None of us had any musical background it was uh, as far as lessons or anything it mm-hmm. was just uh here's the part i mean carrie would come up with these things and he'd look at me and goes yeah well, whatever you think fits and yeah. i go well <laughs> and he goes yeah maybe just put a little hi-hat thing here maybe an accent there but but whatever whatever you want to do well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 
you know, we'd go back to the band house. Everybody would go out at night, you know, drinking and stuff, and I'd stay home with a drum set trying to figure out how in the heck, you know, I was going <laughs> to put these drum parts to all these, you know, complex time signatures and all these things that turned upside down. And as soon as you get into one groove, it would change to another. And, and uh, but I mean, I was happy as could be. I mean, this was like, uh, this was groundbreaking as far as I was concerned. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and you know, we, we were aware of, you know, obviously, Yes and Genesis and some of these bands, you know, in Europe that were doing these. But, you know, we had two guitar players. You know, I mean, again, Kansas rocked. And so we weren't getting really tied up in a lot of, you know, long, uh, you know, airy things that didn't. I mean, we, we wanted to rock. We, we played hard. And uh, especially having two guitar players, it gave us a, 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 a marked advantage, not advantage, but a marked difference uh, to what a lot of the stuff that people were looking at progressive rock. You know, we, we never considered ourselves a progressive rock band, you know, yeah. ever. Yeah. Ever, because we didn't even know what that meant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are really progressive. We're going, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it. Uh, so yeah, we were we were truly bumpkins. Yeah. We really were. I mean, we were just country bumpkins. And so when the first album came out and people saw us in overalls and cowboy boots <laughs> playing all these different time signatures, I mean, people's brains exploded. You know, this, this just doesn't make sense. You know, these guys aren't graduates of a conservatory. Mm-hmm. They're not... There's that these guys can't even read music. Yeah, and, and look how they dress. They're they're ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously. Well, what do you mean ridiculous? It doesn't matter with t-shirts and jeans, you know. But uh, sounds but okay to me. Fit the mold, really? so it, yeah. it was, <laughs> well, obviously you were you were you were signed, of course, because it took you to in in two years' time you produced uh, three albums. And for Kirshner and CBS. And, um, but out of the three albums, um, you know, you were creating a lot of music, but, uh, tell us a little bit about the challenges of creating a hit for these guys because, um, soon after that, you started feeling the pressure. Yeah. Well, you know, Don Kirshner, we were the only band he ever signed. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this whole talent search thing. I mean, yeah. once he signed us, it must have been the thing that was really odd about it is one time I was talking to Don and I said, Don, what, you know, what did you ever think of that tape that we sent? He said, oh, I love those three songs you sent. I said, three? I said, we sent you six. And he goes, really? Where were the other three? I said, well, on the other side of the tape. He goes, I never turned the tape over. And the thing is, <laughs> on the back side of the tape was all our long songs. Well, okay. So he he just thought we were some kind of, you know, pop band with a violin. <laughs> well, <laughs> once we get into making our first album, we've got these songs that are like eight and nine minutes, and he walks in and he's going, where did this stuff come from? Well, Wally Gold was our producer, and the last album Wally had done was, was Barbara Streisand. You know, so we're just going, God, you know, how are we going to do this? So we, we pretty much did a lot of it on our own, but it was... Uh, uh, as as the first album, you know, thanks to FM radio and you know, three hundred nights of touring a night, we started to grow. And the second album was the same way. And we started in third album, and and we were just doing constant touring from the from Queen to Mott the Hoople to the Beach Boys to Billy Joel to yeah. Hawkwind. I mean, we just we never came off the road, you know. But the album sales kept growing, but Don Kirshner, having the background of the Archies, the Monkees, right. Carol King, Neil Sedaka, this guy was used to hits. Yeah. You know, he he was all into the, you know, let's help the boys grow and, and keep them out on the road and stuff, but 
eventually the word came down, Big Don wanted a hit. And uh, and that was a lot of pressure because, you know, that's not what we did. We we were not a, a hit-producing band. So it, it came it came time for Left Overture. And uh, so we went in, you know, working on our fourth album. And, and we had the album done. The album, I mean, uh, the rehearsals was done. We had all the material ready mm-hmm. to go rec- record. Mm-hmm. And so we're breaking down our gear, and, and Carrie goes, uh, uh, I wrote another song last night. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it'll make it on the record. But uh, I said, well, yeah, we're, we pretty much we pretty much have everything. And he goes, well, maybe you guys, maybe we can work on it when we get down to the studio. And I went, okay. So we got down there, and, and uh, he said, well, this is it. And he started playing it, and it was Carry On Wayward Son. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we're just going, boy, that's... That's awfully. Let's 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 put her down. So we <laughs> we put put the song down, and and uh, and of course Steve had a I think a death in the family at the time and had to leave and he didn't really get a didn't really get a chance to be there when we first laid it down. But he came back a number of days later and you know put those opening harmonies and everything on. It was just really taking shape. And remember Jeff Glicksman turning to me and going, you know, if it wasn't us, I would I would think that's a hit song. But since it's us, you know, we have no way of knowing. And and uh, but but sure enough, I mean, the album came out, and we went back on the road. And Bud Carr, our manager, walked in. And he said, "Well, these are some words I thought you, you you probably figured you'd never hear from me, but we have a hit song on the radio." We're going, "What?" The yeah, Wayward Son is is exploding across the country, and and explode it did, yeah. and uh, became a you know a rock anthem in about about six months, you know, and. Uh, so that took us out of being an opening band and thrust us into being a headliner almost overnight. And uh, I have to ask: Did yeah. um, did uh, Don Kirshner ever place Kansas on the rock concert? The show? Oh heck yeah! Yeah. Oh, how many? Boy, yeah, how- he did. And that was. Uh, I think we were on. Uh, we were on two or three times. Wow. And uh, he'd he'd let us play two or three songs. You know, wow. it wasn't like we'd come out and play one song. I mean, he gave us, of course. You know, the other bands got to play more than one song, too. But, uh, yeah, very, very strange for us to go there and all of a sudden we're on TV. There's no audience. You know, of course, there's always audiences for every other band, but as soon as we came on, there was no audience. You know, so <laughs> the kind of thing, well, where'd everybody go, you know? So it was, uh, it was the kind of thing that uh, uh, we, yes, he did have us on there, and that really, really helped us a lot. Wow, because cool. obviously being on television at that time was a rarity for absolutely and uh but you know we we had no hits to play but he would put us on there and uh, we very much appreciated that so we talked about you know carry on wayward son a second ago and and the success of that song aside you know the the patience and the and the faith that don kirshner had for kansas is something that you know in a way would simply be intolerable in today's yeah. record business. I mean, you know, if, if you don't produce, it's almost yeah. as if you're out. But, you know, you guys yeah. carried through with three albums. They stuck with you. Right. Yeah. And uh, you guys finally came up with a great hit in, on the fourth album. And then, of course, the fifth album contained a couple of more, uh, you know, huge, yeah. monstrous hits. So, I mean, that was pretty pretty amazing. It, it, pretty amazing doesn't even cover it. <laughs> because not only that, he was also underwriting us on the road. So, really? Wow. I mean, by the time Left Overture wow. hit... Or wayward son hit, and he was you know three or four hundred grand down oh because gosh. we were Amazing. on the road constantly touring, constantly working, and um, and even though we were developing ourselves as a live band, 
you know, he wanted that hit, and we just, we didn't have it until, you know, by accident, just by chance, Kerry, you know, wrote that, and it barely made it on the record. You know, just think if we'd been, <laughs> just think if, you know, we were breaking our gear down, and Kerry doesn't say to me, hey, I got one more song. What right. if he just goes, exactly. yeah, and right. with it, you know. Yeah. So it, uh, yeah, I mean, things happen for a reason, and and it was great that he came up with it. And uh, but Don Kirshner, we we cannot give that guy enough credit yeah. for his career because he did stand behind us, um, mm-hmm. and that that that's that wouldn't even happen today. Right? No, nobody'd wait four albums for something to happen. Yeah. So we were very fortunate. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. Oh. Point of No Return was released, and which contained Livgren's Dust in the Wind and, of course, the title track, uh, Point of No Return. And these were, you know, I mean, these collectively were two pinnacle years in the history of, of Kansas. And think back to that time and tell us, you know, what you and the band were experiencing on, on personal levels. I mean, the success was, you know, really just a, only a, a handful of years after your days in Topeka. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I, I, ha- I have to tell you, we were just... Um, so naive, okay. Uh, again, just growing up in the Midwest in a, in a very small town, um, 
and four of us having gone to high school together, we were, you know, very a very tightly knit group. I mean, us six guys, I mean, it was the six of us against the world. And it was something that um, I can honestly tell you, we just thought it was something that was supposed to happen. Right, yeah. You know, we just thought, well, if we worked really hard, which we're doing, okay, we're working really hard, and we hone our craft, okay, we're honing our craft, and you write your songs, yeah, we're writing our songs, and you record them, okay, that this was just going to happen. So when it happened, it wasn't like we were standing out in a parking lot, uh, you know, in a daze. It was like, oh, okay, cool. All right, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll go, okay, all right. Well, it was just, you know, it was just like, you know, you're having a, a, a day-to-day job and somebody's saying, well, you've been here for 20 years and now we're going to promote you. Right. Oh, great. Well, okay, good. Well, I've been in my 20 years and I deserve to be. We had no idea what a, what a unique opportunity this was and how what a unique happening it was that because uh-huh. uh, we just didn't know any better we didn't have tons of friends who played in other big popular bands if we lived in la or new york mm-hmm. or chicago mm-hmm. or, or wherever we lived in topeka so it was uh, and had just recently moved to atlanta so we just thought this was supposed to happen and uh, so the 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 mood of the band was just elation and just, God, this is great. And you mean, you mean we get to do this again? You know, we get to make another, you mean we get to go on tour again? That's, that's how naive we were. Mm -hmm. We just thought that if, you know, we stayed out of trouble and and made headway that people would let us go on tour. They would let us make another album. So uh, Mm -hmm. we were just kids, you know? And so it was, it was something that, um, it was just, and of course, moving into a headlining situation was. That's a whole going, different. Okay, this is where we belong. Sure. Working as an opening band, enough of this crap of <laughs> opening for Billy Joel. You know, we we want to get out there and and you know and play play uh, play our stuff and yeah. and uh, put on our show, and that's that's what we did during this time. Um, you guys were landing endorsements. Was Kirshner handling all the endorsements? And what is, on, on that question, what was uh, your first uh, drum endorsement? Or Tell us about that a little bit. No, Kirshner didn't handle anything uh, other than, you know, paying the recording bills and beating okay. the crap out of Epic Records and stuff to make mm-hmm. sure our records got promoted. He, he handled all the, you know, all the recording side. Um, as far as endorsements, um, you know, my first one was with the Slingerland Drum Company, mm-hmm. and um, those were the drums I happened to be using at the time. And somebody from the Slingerland came to see us, and they, you know, talked to me. And would you like to endorse the product? And I said, sure. Uh, interesting story about this, though. I, I got to tell you, there was a band opening for us at the time, three three piece band from Canada uh, called Rush. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've probably heard of those guys. They've, they've been around a bit. Sounds familiar. And and um, so obviously, you know, we'd go out and watch them every night and just go, God, you know, these guys are great. And, and one night, Neil was talking to me, and he goes, "Look, um, I would really like to endorse, you know, Slingerland drums." I go, "Really?" And he goes, "Yeah, I've got this Slingerland snare that I've used for years. Would would you see if Slingerland would be interested?" And I said, "Sure." No problem. I'd be happy to. So <laughs> I'd take their seat, their CD or their album at the time and send it, you know, to Slingerland and said, you know, have you guys seen this guy play? I mean, you guys really need to pick this guy up. I think this guy's going to be gigantic, you know. And, mm-hmm. and 
So about a, two weeks later, I get a call, and they're talking about it. I said, did you ever get that rush thing? I said, and they said, yeah, we're going to pass on him. We just, we don't really <laughs> think it's something that's going to go anywhere. I said, are you kidding? And they go, no, nah, no, nah, we're, we, we're passing. We, we played it for a number of people, and uh, we're, we're just passing on the whole thing. Holy cow. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, at that, at that time. At, at I, mean, I mean, wow. It, it oh, was, uh, you know, and of course, Neil at the time wasn't, quite, you know, wasn't near as what he is today, I mean, as far as success and, and uh, being so well-known, but, you know, I'm going, my God, but, you know, I got to give Slingland credit, they just didn't care for the music. That's yeah. what they said. Yeah, Neil seems like it, but we, we don't care for Rush as a band. Okay. And that was their comment. And I went, well, okay, that's fair enough, you know. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, they were only going to work with people that, that they like the music they and they right. wanted to get behind the music and that mm-hmm. was bad you know but i thought you know to this day <laughs> they they passed on probably you know the most you know famous drummer of all time or one of the most famous drummers yeah well at that time anyway, they were also uh, they were also um endorsing buddy rich at that time uh-huh, um yeah. and they were doing i think the, even gene krupa was yeah. on their on their list so I, I i see your point that there were there was a different mix altogether and they started really widening their endorsements with uh, but um, I, I just didn't you know yeah it was um Slingen was was a you know they had, they had uh the i think they had nigel olson yeah uh carmen apiece uh, yeah. elton john's drummer they you know they had, they had some good they had some good drummers but it was uh it was just to me an all, uh, always an interesting story that they, they had yeah. passed on him. Sure. So, um, but yeah, there wasn't a lot of endorsements at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, Kerry had a couple guitars things, but uh, sure. I think I was I think I was the first one to actually pick up an endorsement. But then, as the band became more popular, obviously, right? Okay, things started to started to come in. In the 80s, a little bit, let's talk about uh, some of the changes. Carrie and, of course, Dave Hope, of course, they had a, a religious conversion, pretty much, and it sort of uh, changed their mindsets. Uh, Steve Walsh, he, he left the band, and, and if that's when John and Dino uh, Elefante came on board. And some things started changing with the band, with, with, with the sound. Explain a little bit uh, about that sound transformation during this time. Well, um to, to be fair and to be accurate mm-hmm. in this, it the people changed. Yeah. Okay. We changed as people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have good, to remember yeah. that you know we started out as teenagers uh, from you know uh, very humble beginnings, living in a band house on a dollar a day. I mean that's right. each guy uh, for about three years. Each guy would get a dollar a day, wow. and the guys that wow. smoked really had a hard time. You know? <laughs> so um, that's what we got paid. Wow. And that's uh, the rest of the money would go into a pot that paid for our band house and for our school bus and any gear that we might need. Uh, but everybody got a dollar a day, and that's what we lived on. So, um, and then eventually, you know, the records come out, and all of a sudden, we're not making a dollar a day; we're making two hundred dollars a week, you know. And and then it goes up from there, and all of a sudden, it's you know, it, it got a lot bigger quicker, and uh, so. Um, uh, you know, habits were formed. Um, you know, abuses uh, came into being that only you know money can support, and uh, people started changing things that were important instead mm-hmm. of us focusing on our music and focusing on what is important to us as a band on a day-to-day basis uh, became secondary and sometimes tertiary. You know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't something that. Uh, 
there was just other things to do. Some of the guys got married. Some of the guys, right. you know, so focus changed. Okay, the whole focus changed. And, you know, this isn't unusual for bands, you know. Uh, it, it's what happens to a lot of people in life, you know. And we were starting to grow up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, running around as six guys around the world is, you know, <laughs> uh, musicians, all of a sudden, some of the guys became dads, you know, they had children. And uh, so uh, priorities changed, and when the priorities changed, mm-hmm. then the music changed. So mm-hmm. that that was the domino effect. It wasn't like it just, well, let's change the music. It was, it was um, guys that were in their teens, into their 20s, were now into their 30s. And so, you know, at the time, it seemed catastrophic and selfish, and how dare you do this, or how dare you do that, or how dare you mm-hmm. want to go over there and be part of this, whatever, whatever happened to being part of that, and, and you know, just stupid stuff. But it, uh, yeah, it did, it ripped the band apart, and uh, um, and for better or for worse, what, whatever, I mean, you look back, and for some of the guys, it was the best move ever for them to get out of the band, because they were in such... Uh, severe uh, abuse, uh, drug abuse, and alcohol abuse. That if they would have continued, they would have died. Wow. So wow. Uh, I mean, literally, you know, one of the guys had one foot in the grave. He was mm. he was doing heroin, and we don't think he ever would have come back. He probably would have died. So it was you know providence, I think, in some regards, that the guys, some of the guys, moved on and got out of what they were doing because I don't think they could have continued under that under that duress and uh, and so yeah the sound started to split up and then uh, ideology started to, to become a part of, and and we had discussed early on that Kansas was never going to be a soapbox was never going to be a soapbox politically or uh, mm-hmm. ideologically right. you know if you had something you wanted to say start a you know do a solo album yeah so anyway it was that kind of thing where sure. um, when Dave and Carrie uh, decided, you know, that they wanted to start it, they wanted to do Christian music. Um, that was not something that fit into the band Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of what the other guys believed, let's say we were all six Christians, even though at the time uh, it was split half, <coughs> split half and half. You know, that's not what this band was about, and we weren't going to shift gears because we all didn't share those those beliefs. Mm-hmm. And since the beliefs weren't shared. How could we play them with any conviction? Right. And I'm speaking for other members of the sure, band. Sure, sure. So, you know, it was the kind of thing that um, it, it didn't seem real. So, look, let's keep Kansas together, and you guys go do, you know, uh, do your Christian stuff as a side project. You know, why does Kansas have to end? Well, it was meant to happen, and, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, Steve didn't want to sing uh things like that and we we just had you know we were a rock band and that's what that's where we came from and we didn't want to uh start singing you know overt uh, christian lyrics that's just not yeah. what kansas was you know mm-hmm. and um so you know the things split down the middle and uh, i always said i think kansas is one of the few <laughs> few bands that broke up over god <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and i say that with all due respect, but you know we we survived, and yeah, the Elefantes came on and did we did the best we could with that, and kind of ended our run with uh, with Sony. Mm-hmm. We had a, you know it was after ten or eleven albums with them, and and it just drew to a close. And I think sure. uh, in I think nineteen eighty one or eighty two, we were all sitting there in a room, 
And uh, I think most of the guys thought, well, this is it. We're going to divvy up our gear. And, right. You know, we're done with our recording career and uh, with Sony, and that's the end of the band. I have a question, Phil, um, uh, regarding one of your albums. Um, I understand that you personally dedicated one of your albums to um, Howard E. Hart and Dan Dehan. Can you tell us how they both influenced the music or in which album that was for? Jeez, uh, that is a obscure question. Let me think. Would that have hmm. been for audio? Uh, no, that would have been for Vinyl Confessions, I think. Hmm. Vinyl Confessions was our next to our last album. Uh, that was my dad's name on there, and he passed away during the making of that album. Mm-hmm. Dan DeHaan, I don't remember why his name was on there. You know, many of the musicians that we interview here on Inside Music Cast are, are guys that not only have their own music or, or have their own uh, solo careers or, or their own bands, but have been very involved in the studio session scene and, and have become well-known in, in such supportive roles. And is this something that you ever pursued or have you been hired, you know, as a studio musician in, in your career? I, I really didn't find much information on that. And, and from what I know about your career, you know, your focus has been pretty much Kansas and yeah, only Kansas. Right. Is, is that right? Very much so. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Steve Hackett, the guitarist from uh, Genesis, um, asked myself and Steve Walsh to play on uh, one of his solo albums, Please Don't Touch, back uh, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we did that, but that, that's been about it. Um, yeah. You know, we, you know, Kansas is pretty much our thing, and that's what we pretty much stayed to. I mean, the guys mm-hmm. have played on various things. Right? Right. No, none of us are really what you'd call studio musicians at all. We've never uh, never really considered ourselves that good. You've got to remember, you know, since we were such a terrible, you know, copy band, we we never really fit into other people's music very well. You yeah. know, we just, anytime you take any of us and put us in, in another situation, we always kind of stuck out as the ugly duckling, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Phil, you've been managing the band for over 15 years now, is that correct? Uh, actually, this is my 21st year. Holy cow. Wow. So what prompted that decision, and how did it change your role and responsibilities with the band? Well, I guess it was in the 80s. Uh, we had done uh, two albums with MCA. Uh, Irving Azoff had signed us to uh, MCA Records, and... Um, we did those records, and right after that is this was before classic rock came along. So bands like ours were, you know, anywhere from ours to Fleetwood Mac to Aerosmith to Boston to Foreigner, any any of the bands that were around like that, all of a sudden became dinosaurs, right? Because that was the word that was the industry term. Because the hair god bands uh, were coming in. So you've got, you know, all the big hair god guys coming in, and now you have us. Well, who are these guys, you know? So we mm-hmm. started to drop off of MTV. We weren't played because the Bon Jovis and the Guns N' Roses and everybody were coming on and, and doing really well, so we kind of just disappeared. Well, our manager uh, decided he wanted, after 20 years of working with us, was going to move into another area of the entertainment business, so we lost him. And within the same week, we lost MCA. And within the same month, we lost Monterey Peninsula, which was our booking agent. Mm -hmm. So within about three weeks, we had nothing. No management, no record company, no booking agent. So we're just kind of sitting there looking at each other, and uh, I go, look, you know, I'll do the day-to-day stuff, 
until uh, till we find a real manager, and that was 21 years ago. Wow. So um, it was just one of those things that, because I've always been so hands-on with the band, mm-hmm. uh, managers really couldn't do anything. Even if we had a manager, he wouldn't do anything without calling me anyway. <laughs> right, you know? right. So, so it was kind of like, so why are we paying this guy 10 or 15% just to call me anyway? Yeah. It's I mean, like a middleman. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I just kind of started doing it myself. And, oh, that's uh, great. Um, your, your side band, Native Window... How did that come to be, and what were the four of you hoping to accomplish with that? Well, um, Native Window is one of those things that uh, it kind of started out as a joke. It was one of those things that we always had such bad opening bands that we thought, why don't we just form our own, own opening band, go out and be the opening band as somebody else, <laughs> and, you know, kind of sitting in a dressing room entertaining ourselves. And then uh, a couple of the writers in the band, mainly Steve and Carrie, uh, said that they didn't really want to write for Kansas anymore, that they had kind of run out of ideas and had run its course or whatever, and they were choosing not to write anymore. So we thought, well, now we have no new material, and why don't the four of us take a shot at, you know, doing a side project? Mm-hmm. There had mm-hmm. actually never been a direct spinoff from Kansas from current members of the band. The current members of the band had never had, uh, you know, another side project guys that had retired from the band or moved on from the band and formed other things. but So we formed Native Window, and we started writing stuff and collaborating with people and looking at some outside songs, and it took us quite a long time to put it all together. And, and we didn't know what we were going to get because most of us had never sung before. Not, most of us had never you know, written entire songs, and we'd all been involved in songwriting and involved in arranging and stuff and making plenty of records, but... Uh, so it was just kind of an experiment, and who knew what it was going to sound like? So we went in, and over a period of about a year and a half, and we put the whole album together, and, and it came out. And so, so what we do is we got our wish. We're now our own opening band, <laughs> and we actually have a, a, a different drum set, and we actually set up differently a native window in front of Kansas. Mm-hmm. And we wear different clothing. We come out and play as That's Native hysterical. Window. And then we say thank you and leave the stage. And they strike all that gear. And we go back, change clothes, and come back out. And um. That's funny. In 1987, I saw uh, U2 on their Joshua Tree tour. And they came through Indianapolis, played at the uh, Dome here, and, you know, 50,000 people. Yeah. And they had they had what they, you know, at the time, big screens, which weren't that big, you know, uh, compared to what, you know, we have now in stadiums. Yeah. So... Los Lobos was the band that was supposed to open, and their plane was late. And um, and somebody came out and said, you know, somebody like whoever was hosting the show came out and said, hey, we're sorry, Los Lobos is running late. Uh, we have a, another band that's going to fill in uh, while Los Lobos gets here. They're they're on their way, but I want to introduce you to the Dalton Brothers band. These four guys come out and they've got on like uh, plaid shirts and overalls and they've got like beards and you know like these funky little cowboy hats. Maybe the way you guys used to dress in Kansas back then. <laughs> but they they came out and played these like these like that's about funny. about three or four of the country songs and and everybody was just thinking what who who is this you know and, and then but they got a shot of the lead singer and you it was Bono. It, wow. it was all. It was wow. U two came out. and It was the only. It was, they only. I read later that they only did this in two <laughs> cities. They did it in London 
and in Indianapolis where the wow. Dalton brothers came out and opened up, but it was you too. As soon as, pe- as, soon as fans got a, got a look at Bono's face, the whole crowd just started going nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. And it was so cool. That, that reminded me when you told me about Native Window and how you, you guys open for your own, you know, you guys are your own opening band. That well, made it's, me think, it's so, made it's me think so of that. funny because we come out there and people look at us, because it's just four of us, obviously, without Steve, uh-huh. and people look at us like, this is this camp. Who? Why? What? <laughs> Who is this? And, 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 of course, you know, during one of the breaks, uh, we all uh, talk during the set. We introduce songs. And I take the, I said, I'd like to take the opportunity, if I could, to thank the guys in Kansas uh-huh. for letting them open for us. I said, this has been a real honor. We've been fans <laughs> for, of the band for many years. Uh, we actually got to meet the band backstage. They're a lot older than we thought they'd be. You know. And, you know, it's all oh, like, but people think I'm serious. Yeah. And and uh, we had, I guess about a month ago, we had a, a man and his wife demand their money back because they did not come to see Native Window uh, uh, pretend to be Kansas. Uh, our road manager no. said, they go, we're not stupid. We saw the opening band, and, and, and oh, then they became God. the club. We're here to see Kansas. And he goes, folks, that, that is Kansas. We are not stupid. You are not going to want our money back. So he takes them out to the merch table, shows them the Native Window CD. You see on the back there? That's the guy's. Sir, we want our money back. We know when we're being duped. So he said, oh, oh, money. I mean, it's just, uh, That's funny. it's insane. Most people get it, obviously. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, this is nuts. Well, as it happens to turn out, I happen to have that Native Window CD right here. So let's uh, take another quick break, and let's check out a track here called An Ocean Away. My thoughts turn to a better place My body's numb from the cold wind that blows And I let my mind drift through time and space Somewhere out there, I know you are waiting I'm thinking of you and my Away. 
that was a track called An Ocean Away by Native Window. Phil, I just want to touch on um, the Diamond Angels Foundation that you're involved with, the annual benefit held at the Weston Diplomat in Florida with Craig yeah. Wittes, um, Ray Durso, and Billy Livesey. Can you tell me how that came about and what your role is there? Yeah, this is an event that happens at the Diplomat Hotel down there uh, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And it's um, it's just a... Uh, it came about... I have a friend down there, that uh, Craig Wittes, that works down there at the uh, Diplomat. He's uh, head of the tennis uh, department there, and head tennis pro. And uh, they wanted to do a big, uh, you know, a big fundraiser, uh, that the hotel did. And so uh, he wanted to get the tennis tournament together down there, going with a bunch of tennis pros. And I got some uh, singers, uh, lead singers from big bands to come down, and we did it. Uh, and the other guys are uh, the backup band. And, uh, and I think we're in our seventh or eighth year now. We've had singers from them. Steve Walsh sang and Steve Algieri when he was with uh, Journey and mm-hmm. Mike Reno from uh, Loverboy and uh, Jerry Beckley from America. And we wow. Had, uh, uh, Mark Farner was there from uh, Grand Funk, and mm-hmm. Jimmy Jameson from Survivor, and uh, we've we've had a lot of great shows down there. And they, each each guy does about four or five songs. We have about a we have three singers per per year, and uh, and it uh, God last time I think it raised almost three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in one evening for the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. Yeah, I, I attended that this past November, and it was just an amazing. They had a big auction. Oh, you were there? Just a, I was there. Um, I partner with Ray Durso, who does the audio, the engineering for it. Oh yeah, Ray. Okay, great guy. Yeah, he's great. And Billy Livesey yeah. and Steve Argy, they're they're the core yeah. band. They're you know they've been around forever here, so they're amazing. And I did. I attended that, and I just couldn't believe. And then they said that you were behind, yeah. you know, putting that together. So yeah, I, I stay way behind. Surprise <laughs> 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 <I'm surprised> you. <laughs> You even asked me about it. Yeah, no, that's that's something that uh, I've done. I'm very proud to be a part of. And, and it really cool. is a great thing. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Very cool. Hey, Phil, we've spent around an hour and talking about Kansas and your career. And, you know, it's you stand back and you see that this has been sort of like a musical little dream, you know, and it's a, because there's such an evolution of your music. Uh, but uh, I just want to say without sounding cliche that, uh, you know, it's uh, you, you guys have really left something to that's embedded into American music culture. And every time you hear the, you know, the opening vocals of Wayward Son or the guitar part of Dust in the Wind, I mean, I think everybody that can that has experienced your music really has a great feeling about it. I know that I do every single time. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we thank you for Appreciate for that. your contribution. It's uh, and I'm sure our listeners listeners would uh, very much agree. So, if if somebody wants to know more about you as to uh, you projects that you're working on or something uh, might be coming up, where can where can they go to? Uh, really, KansasBand.com um, is really the the clearinghouse okay. for everything. I mean, right now we're in the real heavily in the symphonic world, and working uh, a lot. Uh, that's kind of the niche that we're working on now is with uh, symphonies, and uh, that's what our website is pretty much about now. Okay. And because we're we're doing that, we've got a new DVD out that mm-hmm. uh, covers that's you know with us in a symphony, and then we're moving into. Uh, university symphonies in the fall. We're doing about uh, 14 different universities across the country. That's cool. Playing with their universities. So, uh, I mean, playing with their symphonies. So that's, um, 
that would be probably the newest thing that we have coming up. Oh, and good, that's good. Covered a lot in our on our website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your DVD. I, I had a chance to watch that recently, and uh, that's what the Washburn. Uh, Orchestra there in Topeka. Yeah, that was, yeah, we did that as our 35th anniversary. Yeah. We went back to Topeka and used the university orchestra there, and it went so well. I kind of thought, why, why couldn't we do this across the country? So, mm-hmm. in the fall, we're playing uh, the University of Alabama Symphony, uh, mm-hmm. Oklahoma State, uh, Vermont, uh, Clemson, University of Texas. Uh, That's a great. Of universities across the United States, and going in as a fundraiser. We're doing it to help raise money for their their music programs because most of them get all their money sucked into the football program. <laughs> right. There's not much left <laughs> yeah. for the uh, for the music students and stuff. So we're we're doing an, a, a number of those in the fall. Very cool. Well, Phil, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. I've I've had a great time, uh, you know, learning more about you and, and Kansas and, and Native Window and everything you're involved in. I'm sure Eddie feels the same way. And, and uh, special thanks to Kim Riley down there in Florida who joined Excellent. us today thanks, too. Kim. Oh, thank thank you. you. It was great. What an honor. Well, hey, it, it's my honor, and I, I appreciate you guys taking the time. And it's been a lot of fun. Well, great. We'll keep in touch, and uh, maybe we'll catch up with you down the road. All right, guys. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Phil Ehart for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Uwe Reif. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.